This is Brent for Burgundy Blog and Burgundy Blogcast. It's the evening of Sunday, November 3rd. We are in week 9 of the 2019 NFL season. The Redskins played another football game today, and you'll never guess what happened. They lost. They fell to 1-8, and and the current losing streak is three games. You will recall, of course, they were 0-5 before head coach Jake Rudin got fired. Then in their first game under interim head coach Bill Callahan, they played the pathetic Dolphins, so they, of course, won by one point. And then since that storied victory, they've lost three more in a row, failing to score a touchdown in all of them. That's right, Bill Callahan has been the head coach of the Redskins for 16 quarters of football, and the team has failed to register a touchdown in the last 13 of them. I like to think of myself as having a decent vocabulary, but I have long since run out of adjectives to describe the badness of their performances and or the pointlessness of these outcomes. They are really extremely terrible, and the remainder of this season is very close to meaningless. But at least we got to see four quarters of the rookie quarterback today. So why don't you please share in my pain as I attempt to analyze something sort of resembling professional football. All right, they lost 24 to 9 in Buffalo at the hands of the Bills. That's a 15-point loss, and I would say, yeah, that's probably about what it felt like they deserved. This game was strikingly similar to the other two losses under Callahan, those being the most recent two preceding games, in at least one way, which is the pace of the game, and more specifically, the extremely slow and methodical pace of the Redskins' offense, not merely based on the run, but utterly dependent and primarily subsistent on the run. And that painstakingly slow pace of offensive play has translated into an incredibly fast overall pace of game flow, such that each of these three losses has clocked in at well under three hours. I will say that when the team is so hard to watch because they make so few attractive plays, it is an underrated blessing for the games to be over so quickly. Now, jokes aside, there's absolutely zero question that Callahan is doing this on purpose. I mean, of course we know that he's obsessed with the running game, but it's very obvious that one of his main goals every game, under the larger goal of attempting to win the game, is to basically bleed the clock from the opening kickoff so as to minimize the opponent's number of possessions, and therefore their total scoring potential, and thereby hopefully keep every game close, so that the vast disparity between the opponent's talent level and the Redskins' talent level must inevitably shrink down to only a few scores, so that every game is close, and the Redskins are extremely unlikely to get blown out. And when that running game is working, as it clearly was today, at least in the first half, this strategy is an effective tool in making it look like the Redskins are a legitimate NFL team with a chance to beat, well, really anybody. The reality, of course, is that that disparity in talent between opponent and the Redskins, week in and week out, is so reliable and of such magnitude that even when either team handles the ball only half a dozen times, there is still a vanishingly small chance of the Redskins making a key play and stealing a win. Basically, their collective weakness is so complete that it cannot be out-schemed or undermined. Being that the Redskins are clearly one of the two or three worst teams in the league, and in my opinion, the worst overall franchise, they're probably going to be underdogs in every remaining game, and we are just not going to be seeing very much interesting or impressive play. 
Furthermore, any additional wins could be seen as counterproductive with respect to the possibility of future improvement, as often explained previously on this very podcast, considering their impact on draft positioning and on the owner's belief and satisfaction in Bruce Allen and the other members of the front office. Consequently, I feel it's very hard for the discriminating Redskins fan to even know what exactly to root for or pull for or cheer for in a regular season Redskins game in the second half of the 2019 season. Me personally, as you should have deduced in recent weeks of this podcast, I am all in for being all out. I'm rooting hard for losses the rest of the way, not merely in a vacuum, but in full context, considering who's coaching, who's playing, who's starting at what position. In my opinion, knowing that the staff will turn over probably almost in its entirety, and also from my perspective, desperately wanting the same thing to happen to most or all executive positions. There's no benefit to be had in terms of culture or momentum or carryover or building a foundation or any of that such nonsense that could outweigh the benefit of a potential top two or three pick in the draft. Plus, even more importantly, the glimmer of hope in Dan Snyder finally feeling so embarrassed and humiliated by the ineptitude of Bruce Allen and the 15 to 20 senior vice presidents in this organization that Dan might finally light some dynamite. I believe in that deeply, not because I look forward to hating the team for the rest of my life, but because I wholeheartedly subscribe to the philosophy that you can sacrifice one game now in a dead season to improve your chances of two wins in the future in a contending season. Okay, it's still a victory and success and personal happiness maximizing philosophy. It is not straight masochism or spite. Now, yes, I confess to possibly having developed a perverse mild masochism in the present, which allows me to almost revel in Bruce's misfortune. But no, I obviously don't want them to be bad forever. I want them to be good. I want them to be very good in the future as soon as possible, in fact. And I don't think it should be that hard to understand that losing badly in one given season can increase your chances of winning big in the future. I did say increase your chances, mind you. I did not say guarantee. Do not tweet me, please, that tanking does not guarantee any improvement. No shit, Sherlock. I'm not playing for guarantees. And for that matter, the continued ownership by Dan Snyder probably, in fact, guarantees eternal losing, okay? If you want to go that deep, then none of this matters at all and we should all just quit. But yes, I'm very happy to lose pointless games in a lost season if they could meaningfully improve the Redskins' chances of winning meaningful games in a meaningful season in the next few years. Now, all of that said, these twisted, conflicted rooting interests for what I like to call the intellectually honest Redskins fan have now become even more difficult to maneuver. Because as of today, and hopefully, although not definitely, But very hopefully, for the foreseeable future and and the remainder of the season, the position on the team with the most direct impact and most significant impact on the final result of every remaining game is now manned by a first-round rookie whose development and eventual success, or lack thereof, will be a primary determinant in the overall credibility of the team and in my year-round sports fan happiness. In other words, I want the team to suck, but I want Dwayne Haskins to get good. Ideally fast, although it's looking less and less likely by the week that that's how this is going to go. And obviously those two things, the Redskins sucking but Haskins dominating, they're not going to easily go hand in hand. So what I'm pretty sure I wanted today was for the Redskins to lose, which they did, but for Haskins to look good, which was a mixed bag. I guess that means, all things considered, today was more of a win for me than a loss. But it certainly is weird as hell, rooting not simply for your team to end up with more points than the other one, but instead for weird combinations of individual and overall team results that are so frequently at odds with each other. I must say it sucks compared to being a normal fan of a normal team. Now, of course, I've been petitioning for Haskins to get starts for many weeks, and I think it's kind of ridiculous that it took 
Case Keenum not being able to escape the concussion protocol for this to finally happen. But thank God Callahan and the rest of the staff finally sacked up and put him in a game, in fact prepared him to start and gave him the start, because otherwise this game would have had all of the appeal of a colonoscopy. So let's talk about Haskins. Short overall summary. Number one, he was fine. Number two, he's still clearly and substantially worse than a fan should be allowed to reasonably expect his team's number 15 overall pick rookie quarterback to be in November. And number three, there is absolutely no valid justification barring injury to Haskins for Haskins not to start and finish every remaining game this year and to be treated in every practice as the starter. Permit me to elaborate. Regarding number one, he was fine. I think he basically just overall had a roughly equal number of good and bad moments. There were no brilliant flashes. There were no unforgivable transgressions. There were some good throws, some good runs, a handful of what seemed to be effective play calls or play changes at the line. And for the most part, it seemed like he was operating the huddle and the pre-snap process like someone who knew what he was doing, if only from limited experience. There were, of course, also some bad throws some bad sacks, and there were no touchdowns. Yes, the Bills have a very good defense, which has forced most opposing quarterbacks into bad games, including Tom Brady, but it's still fair, and I think fairly easy, to hold him accountable for plays that were there to be made, but not taken advantage of. On his first possession, which of course was derailed immediately by an incredibly stupid illegal formation penalty on the very first snap of the game, and which thereafter did not result in even a single first down, he didn't really do anything, and he had a weird-looking a double clutch motion on what seemed to be a pretty decent uh, shotgun snap on third down. On his second position, he actually had two very nice passes on consecutive plays. One was a crosser to Stephen Sims Jr., which resulted in a first down. The next one was an out route to McLaurin, his old buddy from Ohio State, which also resulted in a first down, and it was a pretty nifty throw and catch on the sideline. Those were two throws back-to-back where he showed good arm talent, good timing, and I'm not at all certain, in fact, I'm skeptical, that Keenum or McCoy would have made both of those plays. But then, less than a minute later, he threw kind of subpar passes on consecutive plays. One, he was a little bit behind McLaurin on what could have been a first down conversion over the middle. And the second one, he was very wide to Smallwood along the sideline coming out of the backfield. And after that, they were forced to punt. That one possession, in fact, I thought was kind of a microcosm of his day, just of where he is right now as a player. Couple good throws, couple bad throws, nothing to show for it. In the second quarter, Adrian Peterson started to go off. On the Redskins' first possession of that quarter, Peterson had that sequence of three really nice runs with gains of 18, 17, and 28 yards on consecutive uh, carries. Haskins was just kind of along for the ride on that drive. They did get down inside the red zone, where on third and two, Haskins moved to his right out of the pocket, showed some good movement, but Trent Murphy, of all people, actually tracked him down and forced a field goal attempt. Shortly before half, the Redskins had another decent drive, primarily on the back of Adrian Peterson. A couple nice runs and a nice reception. But ultimately, on a third and ten, Haskins threw a decent but just not quite good enough pass to Paul Richardson in the back corner of the end zone. Again, Haskins did what he needed to do to get them into reasonable scoring position. There were no glaring pre-snap penalties, no egregious clock management mistakes, but also no plays where he took over the offense or made something happen by himself. And his last effort was fair, but just not quite good enough. 
In the third quarter, almost nothing interesting happened, except for one time when the Redskins took over with outstanding field position, I think on the 35, after a truly horrendous punt by the Bills. Haskins almost immediately got sacked by a free rusher off the right edge. That drive stalled and ended up in another field goal. At that point, they were only down 17-9. to So Haskins contributed to the offense, totally failing to take advantage of a gift in field possession, or field position at a time when a touchdown really would have made things interesting. Early in the fourth quarter, there was another offensive sequence that I thought summed up his overall unevenness. First, he had a bad overthrow of a wide-open Trey Quinn, intermediate to deep, down the left side of the field. That one would have been a huge gain, or maybe six. Haskins missed him by a mile. It was just a bad pass. A couple plays later, though, on third and six, Haskins was under heavy duress. He threw a nice pass, a dart, to Paul Richardson on the sideline for a first-down conversion. There was another play when I thought, no way Keenan makes that play few plays after that, uh, it was another third and six, in fact. Haskins used his legs to make a nice play. He very quickly in the progression recognized that Buffalo was in man coverage. He had a wide open running lane to the left. He tucked it and ran. Of course, he almost fumbled it by pulling it casually and bobbling it off his own thigh, but he collected it and easily ran for the first. So that was nice too, overall. Of course, the drive eventually stalled and uh, did not result in points. Then Haskins actually got another chance, six or seven minutes left in the game, still down only eight points, but after a good punt by the Bills, um, pinned pretty deep inside Redskins territory, Haskins just couldn't make anything happen, it was a three and out. That was really their last chance, and he just didn't look good on that possession at all. Redskins punted, Bills took that one all the way down and scored, making it 24-9, to which ended up being the final score. At that point, it was out of reach, and when the Redskins got it back for one last ditch effort, the Bills front seven just pinned their ears back and sacked him a couple more times. I'm sure you will recall one sack he took. He just got absolutely crushed in the pocket or just outside the pocket after kind of shuffling to his right in a way that looked clearly avoidable, but it almost just seemed to catch him off guard how quickly the, rush, the rusher reached him there. And I thought that those were a handful of the most important plays pulled from his performance in this uh, starting debut. They kind of balance each other out. He didn't lose the game for the Redskins, but he certainly didn't win the game for the Redskins or really do anything at all single-handedly to dramatically improve their chances of winning the game. He was just kind of there. I mean, if he wasn't a high-profile rookie quarterback getting his first career start, if he was, in fact, Colt Colt McCoy or uh, Case Keenum, then I think his performance today, 15 of 22 for 144, no touchdowns, no picks, no major gaffes, but really no big highlight plays, that performance probably would not even have been mentioned for good or for bad by anyone in the sports media outside D.C. or Buffalo. So that brings me to my second point in my Haskins synopsis, which is that, yeah, he's clearly behind where we all wanted him to be. And he's at least a little behind where we should have reasonably expected him to be. I'm not trying to act like it's some routine thing for a rookie quarterback, even a first-rounder, to waltz into the NFL and immediately be a badass. It's still pretty pretty rare, but it happens. And sometimes you get a Dak Prescott in the fourth round or a Gardner Minshew in the sixth round who shows up unexpectedly and he's pretty legit right away. I mean, Daniel Jones, to whom Haskins, of course, will be forever linked because they came in in the same draft class, drafted only nine spots apart. His first NFL performance was bananas. And since then, he's kind of settled back down to earth, although he did help the Giants to a win over the Skins. But what I mean to say is that these days, a lot of rookie quarterbacks are able to contribute substantially and positively to winning efforts across the NFL. And Haskins now has had two relief efforts, granted not the best of circumstances to uh, enter on, but hey, you got to work with what you got. Two relief appearances and now one start. And the fact of the matter is that he clearly has a very long way to go before he's even an average NFL quarterback. As of right now, if he keeps the job, he will be considered the inferior of the two starters in most of the remaining games. In fact, possibly all of them. It doesn't mean he's doomed, and it doesn't say anything at all about his ceiling. But yes, come on. 
wake up. It does say something about the actual likelihood of likelihood of him ever hitting his ceiling. I'm not going to absolutely shred him for not being amazing right off the bat. But when you get drafted, if you had the whole off-season program to kind of get acclimated, you had a fair amount of preseason action, and then you had two full months to, you know, participate in your team's regular season, sort of watch how it goes, learn under some vets, learn under a crazy number of coaches who were quarterbacks in their playing days. Yes, he went through a uh, head coach change, but he got to keep his offensive coordinator. He'd previously had a couple of tastes of NFL action to get a little sense of the speed of the game at the pro level. I think that when you've had all that and then you come in and get your first start in week nine, granted again on the road against a good... I think when your team has to basically manage the game around you or almost manage you out of it, when they trust you only with 13 pass attempts in the first three full quarters, and when by that point you really have not taken a single deep shot yet, even though your cannon of an arm is supposed to be the reason you got drafted so high in the first place, I absolutely think it's fair and okay to admit that the guy's not quite everything we hoped for, at least so far. That's okay, it's just true. And that's not to have said anything yet about the many, many rumors that are now accumulating about his greater-than-expected difficulty in transitioning to calling plays and running a huddle. I do feel like that's a little bit less than you're hoping to get when you take a quarterback at number 15 in today's NFL. Now, it's part of that because the recently fired Jay Gruden just totally refused to invest anything significant in Dwayne's development in the first two months of the season because he knew that Dwayne was not going to realistically be able to help him keep his job anyway. Maybe. I guess maybe. But again, O'Connell's been here all along. Kavanaugh's been here all along. Tim Rattay, the quarterback's coach, has been here all In general, first-round picks really are supposed to contribute almost immediately. And by the ends of their rookie years, to be contributors and good players. And by their second years, to be studs. That's why you draft them so early, because you're going to get more out of them on their first contract. Players, really at any position with lots of talent, but who are raw and likely to need a lot of time to develop, tend to slide a couple of rounds. And that's probably what should have happened with Dwayne Haskins, based on what we've seen so far. And maybe that's what would have happened if Dan Snyder hadn't personally fallen in love with him. So I'm definitely not out on Haskins yet. I'm a little nervous, but I'm not out. I certainly think he could still pan out. But the fact that it's taking a while, and that we've at least ruled out that he's an insane prodigy, it seems to me just a simple fact that it's a negative prognostic indicator about its future, even if only a mild one. <laughs> Lastly, the third part of my Haskins synopsis is the assertion that he should definitely remain the starter and be treated as the starter from here on out. I think that one is just like self-evident. The only justification for him not being in that role was a rumored extreme degree of unreadiness and unfitness to organize and operate the huddle and the offense. He's past that. He's not a disaster with pre-snap stuff. He's not great at it. He may not even be good at it. But it was not some like bizarre herky-jerky game because of his flagrant inability to even function in that role. That's just not what happened. He wasn't a good quarterback today, but he was a quarterback. They're 1-8. They're rapidly approaching early mathematical elimination. The other quarterbacks on this team are some combination of bad and hurt, and it is clear that Dwayne Haskins is just as capable of handing the ball off to Adrian Peterson and of positioning the offense for three field goals a game as either of those other two guys is. And with Haskins, you get the enormous added benefit of investing in your future. So that is just that. I actually think that, contrary to what Callahan implied over the course of the last week, which is the case Keenum, not only the starter, but the captain and an important part of this team going forward until further notice, I think that it's going to be hard even for Callahan to ignore the reality I just explained, that Haskins will be the starter after the bye against the Jets. I think it's great that they got him in there. They've got four full, uh, full quarters of his own work 
for them and for him to critique. He can study it for two weeks. They can build a nice game plan just for him against a very beatable opponent. We should all at least get to spend the next two months evaluating whether Haskins is going to be the future or if the team starts needs to start thinking about an early exit. Dwayne Haskins was by far the most important thing about this game from the standpoint of any Redskins fan and possibly really the only <laughs> very important thing about the game. But here are a few other thoughts, a very few other thoughts in sort of rapid fire succession. Quinton Dunbar is easily the best corner on the Redskins and he's he's a legitimately good NFL corner. But he wasn't that great today in particular in the first half. He got beat once for a touchdown by Beasley. And he got a he got beat again by John Brown down near the goal line to set up a field goal in the second quarter. I noticed Cole Holcomb having a couple not-so-great plays in the first half. One time, he was a blitzer, and he got completely stoned by a running back in the pickup. Another time, he was trying to bring down either Gore or Singletary around the edge, and he just took kind of a bad inside angle and got beat to a spot. I think it was on that drive that Montez Sweat had kind of a bad play where Josh Allen deked him out of his shoes, but then he had a good play down closer to the goal line where he kind of blew up a pass play. Ryan Anderson also had a nice play down there where he blew up a jet sweep. The Bills... Short yardage and goal line play calling today, by the way, was absolutely atrocious. Seems like the only thing the Bills are prepared to do when they need one yard is bring in the jumbo package, squeeze everyone into 10 feet's worth of space, and pound the running back up the middle. Jeez, how many times did they do that? That was so bad. Adrian Peterson was indeed really good. He had good burst, bunch of big chunk gains, at least one nice gain on a screen play. He's definitely a throwback type of running back, but he does not suck. He's still good. It's just that I don't care at all. He represents to me so many failings of the organization. The fact that Adrian Peterson at 34 years old is the most important player on the offense is such an indictment of the offense and of the roster. I know there have been injuries to Jordan Reed and Chris Thompson and to Geis, but Peterson was an emergency pickup off the street last year. He was a backup plan. They fell into Adrian Peterson. The Redskins don't really deserve any credit for finding him. I mean, maybe a little, but he was an accident. And on top of that, he's having these good games in just the most utterly meaningless season. He's not part of the future. He's strictly part of the present, and the present is pointless. So he's having good games, but I just, I'm not really enjoying them at all. Appreciating them on the level of a fan who likes watching good football players. And I will remember that, that he's kind of doing something special and defying, well, defying his age and father time and yada, yada, yada. He's just a dead end for me. So I can't really get behind it. And my memories in the future of Adrian Peterson as a Redskin are not going to be super fond ones. I feel like his success merely highlights the team's failure. Let's see, what else? Uh, that Redskins defensive line had some really nice run stops in key situations. The big three, Allen, Payne, Ioannidis, all chipping in. And, oh yeah, Troy Apke, he sucked today. Actually, he did have one nice play. Uh, he blew up a run near the goal line. But more importantly, uh, there was a special teams play. It was that long kick return by former Redskin Andre Roberts. Apke, whose whole career is dependent on supposedly being a special teams maven, had the best chance at Roberts and just got completely eliminated by, I think, a fullback who actually had to cross in front of Roberts. Then later on, uh, Apke and Josh Norman teamed up to get beat by John Brown on a third and 18, which the Bills converted prior to scoring their last touchdown. Josh Norman decided to leave his man on that play for really no reason. By the way, during the game, I tweeted something about the Redskins paying Josh Norman a lot of money this year for him to not help, and uh, Josh Norman saw that tweet somehow less than an hour after the game ended and tweeted back at me a thumbs-up emoji. Okie dokie, Josh. I'm not sure Kevin O'Connell's really impressing me much these last few games. I think this year was supposed to be his big opportunity to show us that he too can be an offensive mastermind 
like the gone but not forgotten Sean McVay, that maybe he'll even be ready to be a super young head coach in the next few years. Well, the Redskins offense that he's been coordinating is pretty bad. Dwayne Haskins has not exactly improved by leaps and bounds. As previously mentioned, the team has not scored a touchdown in its last 13 quarters of action. They're super duper run heavy in a way that may suit the team's current personnel, but of course is not conducive to sustained winning in the modern NFL. I'm sure a lot of that is Coach Callahan's medieval philosophy and influence, but we're not really seeing a whole lot of creativity there that I feel comfortable attributing to KOC. My biggest beef specifically today was that on a day when Peterson was absolutely going off in the first half for like 100 yards, it seemed like Haskins really would have benefited from a couple of play-action shot calls. I mean, that had to have been there. and just never materialized. They hardly called any play-action today, even though it seemed like the perfect time for it. And I know that they were trying to manage and protect Haskins, but they didn't let him rip it really at all. You got to find between like Steven Sims and Richardson and of course McLaurin a couple of deep balls for him to try to make something happen with that arm. Again, I know they've been limited by injuries. Jordan Reed never played. Chris Thompson's got another extended absence. Of course, Trent Williams being out has really affected a lot of what they can do in terms of protection. But so far, yeah, sorry, I'm a little underwhelmed with Kevin (laughs) O'Connell. Last thing for this week, Trent Williams. Trent Williams, of course, was not traded prior to the trade deadline and then somewhat surprisingly reported to the Redskins like two minutes later. This whole situation is a big, confusing, frankly, ugly and off-putting mystery. And I think the way that it ends up getting handled is going to be extremely important for the franchise. But I don't think I'm going to spend too long talking about it today because I just don't feel like I know enough about what's going on to have a smart opinion about it. It is still just very, very weird. And there are so many unknown details, at least from my perspective. First of all, it probably is dumb that the Redskins did not trade him ahead of the trade deadline, although kind of seems like maybe there were not any strong offers uh, right before the trade deadline. If that's true, then possibly we can go back and blame Bruce Allen for not taking what seemed to have been or were reported to be much better offers earlier in the season. And it does kind of make sense to me that teams were willing to pay more for him when they thought they were going to be getting him for the whole year. Even at his age and with his history of injuries and suspensions, I do think he probably is worth or should be worth a first round pick to somebody right now if that had been done at the beginning of the year with two full years left on his contract. But no, it doesn't really surprise me that the Redskins couldn't finagle a one out of somebody here at the end of October. Therefore, I guess I'm not mad that they didn't trade him away for like a third, but I am mad that they seem to have wasted this entire year of his career and his life and not gotten something substantial for him back around the time when Laramie Tunsil was fetching an enormous haul. As for the weirdness around Trent reporting, I certainly don't have any uh, intel that tells me he's more likely to play than all of the local media like universally believe. To be clear, nobody actually thinks he is going to play for the Redskins ever again. But I will make one point, probably a short point, about his explanation of his health scare and the part that the Redskins medical staff played in it and his resulting loss of trust in the organization. Trent Williams reported that his scalp tumor was diagnosed as DFSP, dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, and he said several times that it nearly cost him his life and that at one point a doctor actually told him to, quote, get his affairs in order. I'm going to make a few quick disclaimers before I give you my take on this. Number one, as some of you know, I am a medical doctor, and I probably do have some degree of a bias in favor of doctors. Number two, I am not an oncologist nor a dermatologist. 
so I certainly would not consider myself an expert on DFSP. But here are some things that I gather about it after reviewing a very detailed and very reliable resource. It is crazy rare. It usually starts out looking like any other old, random, generic, non-specific skin thingamabobber, like a callus or a wart or a cyst, as he says it was thought to be at one point. It is very rarely malignant. In fact, even though Trent described it as a cancer, therefore I suspect it was described with that term by at least one of his healthcare providers. DFSP is very, very rarely malignant in the way that most non-medical people attribute to conditions characterized by the word cancer. I'm not saying in this context the word cancer is inaccurate. I'm not even really saying it's a stretch. But when you hear Trent say that it was caught and resected only, you know, merely weeks before it metastasized into his brain and killed him. Consider that there's, number one, almost no way that anyone could actually know that. And number two, that that kind of thing happens in only like one or two percent of cases of DFSP. And the context that I'll add from my personal experience is that the same doctor can give the same explanation of the same disease and the same prognosis to two different patients. And those two patients and their families may have two wildly different responses and reactions and interpretations of those explanations. It is possible, and in my only partially informed opinion, somewhat likely, that Trent Williams' experience of this condition was a little more harrowing for the patient than it might have been for some others. I also think that the idea that this skin growth was known about by the patient for five or six years before being biopsied is almost unthinkable, definitely inexplicable, and almost certainly more attributable to decision-making by the patient than by his physical trainers or his sports medicine doctors. I'm just going to leave it at that. 